All right, we come now in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And before we read this text and unpack it together, let's pray again and let's ask God for help as we hear and study His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come again this morning, and Lord, we thank you that we come today in the name of Jesus, in the name of our Savior, and Lord, we thank you that we can, we can even approach you as our Father in heaven through the gospel, and God, we ask that you would bless us today. Lord, we worship you as the God who speaks. You're a speaking God because you're the living God. And Lord, we believe that the Scripture is your Word. And we ask, God, that you would help us to honor it, that you would help us to believe it, that you would help us to receive your very words this morning. We ask, Lord, that our minds would be instructed today, that our hearts would be encouraged in the Gospel. Lord, please come. Please help us this morning. Be faithful to us, Lord. God, we trust you. Build up your church through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to say one thing before we read this passage together. Why Romans 6? Why this sermon? And I'll say, I'll say two things very briefly. Okay? Two things that I know this morning is that every Christian in this room is in a battle with sin. You are in a fight with sin. And one of the things that we want to make sure we're doing is that as we engage this battle, we engage this battle in an informed way. We don't want to be unequipped in our battle with indwelling sin. And so that's my aim this morning is I want the Word of God to equip us for battle in, in our fight with our sin. And the second thing that I know this morning is that every non-Christian in the room is not in a battle with sin. You're imprisoned to sin. And I want you to know that about yourself and I want you to know the only way to be set free this morning is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with those two aims today, let's read God's Word together. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 14 this morning. This is God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now you'll see in verse 1 that the Apostle Paul begins with a question that presupposes a context. And that question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now the context of that question is the gospel of the free grace of God that Paul has been unpacking for the previous five chapters. Chapters 1 through 5, he's unpacking the gospel of grace. And there's something about this gospel that provokes this objection that Paul needs to deal with. Paul's enemies in that objection, Paul's, Paul's getting ahead of his enemies that would try to reduce his gospel to absurdum. And what that means is, okay, Paul, we've heard you so far in chapters 1 through 5, but if what you're saying is true, we should just continue in sin that the mercy and grace of God would superabound and be magnified all the more. Now, earlier in Romans 3, verse 8, you can see that Paul's enemies have already slanderously charged Paul with teaching that doctrine, that we should do evil that good may come of it. Okay? And in the, in the early church and even in the New Testament period, there were false teachers inside the church who were distorting the grace of God. Jude 4 says it this way, they were turning the grace of God into sensuality, into licentiousness. They were using the grace of God as a license to sin all they wanted to. So this is a real objection. And Romans 6 is Paul's rejection of that conclusion. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. But there is something about that question that reveals something about Paul's gospel. In other words, the question is the wrong question, 
But there's something that Paul has been saying about the gospel that provokes that question. And I want us to spend just a few minutes reviewing chapters 1 through 5. And no doubt what you'll see is it's the freeness of the grace of God. It's the freeness that God that that Paul holds out to sinners, the freeness of God's mercy. Before we get to chapter 6, there are several things that Paul says about unredeemed humanity. He has indicted the entire human race in chapter 1 of Romans as under God's wrath. 118, the wrath of God is being revealed. It's a present reality in this world. In chapter 2, Paul tells us that unredeemed humanity is heading towards God's judgment. In chapter 3, he tells us that we're all guilty of sin, every single one of us. And in chapter 5, he tells us that not only are we guilty of our sins, the sin of Adam, we're condemned in Adam. The sin of Adam is actually imputed to us. We are condemned from the moment we are conceived. And so Paul sketches out in these first five chapters the plight of human beings outside of Jesus Christ. And we are in a desperate, damned state apart from from Christ and the worst part about it Paul says this in chapter 3 there's absolutely nothing that you can do to remedy this situation you could try for a hundred years to save yourself from this condition and you cannot do it Romans chapter 3 verse 21 by works of law No human being will be justified in his sight. So not only are we under sin, under wrath, Paul says there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it in and of ourselves. And then side by side in the midst of our misery in chapters 1 through 5, Paul begins to announce and hold forth the glorious gospel of the grace of God. In chapter 1, he calls it the good news of God's Son, Jesus Christ, descended from David, crucified and raised from the dead. Later in chapter 1, he refers to this good news as the very power of God to save all who believe. Paul tells us in chapter 3, That God saves sinners by putting forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. He tells us how God is going to save us through Jesus Christ. As Jesus is put forward as the lamb, as the bloody payment for sin, the wrath-canceling sacrifice, the propitiation that we all need. This is how God is going to redeem sinners. For all who put their trust in in Jesus and on the basis of that sacrifice for sin God renders a judgment on behalf of every believer we refer to that judicial verdict that God renders on the behalf of every Christian as the doctrine of justification 
God, when we trust in Jesus Christ who died in our place and for our sins, God declares us righteous. We are justified in God's sight through the work of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says about that verdict in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. That was the lightning rod in Paul's gospel. That part about faith alone. We, we hold that one is justified by, by faith apart from works of law. That freeness of that doctrine of justification by faith alone is what provokes the question in chapter 6, verse 1. Let's unpack that a little bit. You need to know this about religious people. Religious people have no problem with saying that God justifies. But the only issue they have is religious people proclaim God justifies the just. If you're good, God will justify you. In fact, that's exactly what good judges do. Good judges hear court cases, and if you're guilty, they condemn you. And if you are innocent, they justify you. Good judges justify the just, fine and good. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, God justifies, listen, the ungodly. God just God renders a judicial verdict. He doesn't justify the just through the gospel. God renders a verdict about the ungodly. That's the lightning rod. That's the objection. Wait a second here, Paul. Wait a second here, Paul. Are you saying that the unrighteous get the blessing instead of the righteous getting the blessing? And that's the scandal of grace, that in Christ we get a verdict that is a direct contradiction to our state. It's not God justifies the just, it's God justifies us the ungodly. While we are enemies, Romans chapter 5, Paul says Christ died for us. God justifies the ungodly through our Lord Jesus Christ. He does this freely. He does it apart from human works. Therefore, he, he undercuts all human boasting. It's a free justification. Absolutely of grace. It's glorious good news. Real Christianity, you get the verdict, you get the blessing before you even begin to obey your God. It's not the reward of a really long journey that you finally get there and you get justified. You get it at the very beginning of your Christian life and you carry that status with you all your days in this world. It is the present possession of every Christian. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Since 
We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. That's the Christian doctrine of justification. And I hope that gladdens your soul every time you remember it as a believer. Every time you recount what God has graciously done for you in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. The righteous record of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us before we ever kept one commandment as a Christian. Justification is is one of these glorious truths about the gospel that can't be improved. It's perfect from the moment that it's rendered. In other words, in a million years into heaven, a Christian will not be more justified than the moment they first believe the gospel. Why? Because they're covered in the righteousness of Jesus, not their own. God justifies the ungodly. The way Paul summarizes this at the end of chapter 5 is he reminds Christians where your sin increased, God's grace superabounded towards you. You sinned and then you sinned some more and you send yourself into the biggest hole you can imagine and you sin some more after that and God's grace has covered you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's a glorious gospel. You have peace with God. Now there are two wrong responses to the proclamation of that freedom, the freeness of that grace. One is the legalistic response. Paul, wait a second. This is the objection, the legalist objection. Paul, if you tell people that they have peace with God before they actually begin to obey God, you're undercutting the motives for Christian obedience. If you give them the reward at the very beginning, you're undercutting that motive. You're supposed to hold that reward out at the very end. You do right, you get justified. God justifies the just. And what the, what the order of Romans shows us is that Paul thinks the exact opposite. The Christian gospel is the exact opposite. Before we get into the sections in Romans dealing with sanctification, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul has proclaimed a free justification by faith. Justification always precedes and grounds our sanctification. It's never a reward for our sanctification. The verdict, friends, I mean, this is good news. It comes before our obedience. And aren't you thankful that it does? If God were to mark your sin, who could stand before him? Not one of us. But we get a free pardon in our Lord Jesus Christ. The second response, wrong response to the free proclamation of the grace of God is the antinomian response, which concludes this way. Man, free forgiveness sounds great to me. I mean, this is just 
good stuff. I want to be forgiven of my sin. And man, I love God's mercy. God's mercy, man, I love God's mercy. And since I can't obey anyway, the antinomian says, I'm just going to continue in sin that God's mercy, God's mercy would just be magnified in my life. And my life's going to magnify God's mercy. So I'm just going to continue in sin. And against this antinomian objection, Paul shows us in Romans 6 that though justification is by faith alone, it never occurs alone. Justification is a foundational part of holistic salvation that Christ has provided for his people. Call his name Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. He's going to save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus has done. Paul unfolds this holistic gospel, holistic salvation from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 8 in the book of Romans. And that's where we're headed this morning. In the strongest terms, Paul categorically rejects this assumption that justified Christians should continue in a life of sin. By no means. Verse 2. God forbid it. In other words, if the objectors were to say, okay, Paul, we've been listening to you for five chapters now, and, and our conclusion is this, that we should continue in sin, that God's grace should just abound. Have we understood your gospel rightly, Paul? And Paul objects and says, absolutely not. You have categorically misunderstood me. That is not my gospel. That is not what Jesus has done for his people. And he's going to unpack that rejection in these next 13 verses. Look at verse 2. Paul counters the objection in verse 1 with his own question in verse 2. And really this is the thesis for our entire passage this morning. And his, his question, his rebuttal question is this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, there's something about the objection that they're not understanding that reality. How can we justified Christians who've died to sin, how could we possibly continue to live in sin? That's the thesis. Now I want you to notice this. In that question in verse 2, Paul proclaims that part of that once-for-all achievement of the gospel is that every Christian has died to sin. Every Christian, Paul says, has died to sin. This is where we got to make sure we're paying attention because some of us understand the Christian gospel to be forgiveness of our sins and praise God that it is but that's not all that it is Jesus has provided holistic salvation for his people and part of what Christ has achieved for us according to verse 2 is a death to sin now this is another place where Christianity is fundamentally different 
from other religions and other ethical systems. Okay, It's different. It's not Christian rules or just like everybody else's rules at the end of the day. It's not like that. Not only are the rules not the same, the way that you keep them are, are not the same. They're different worlds. Okay? Other systems, ethical systems, assume that the way that you bring people into moral conformity is that you tell them to become what they're not. Okay? What do you mean? Well, you tell the drunkard to get sober. Get sober, drunkard. You tell the angry man to get patient. Get patient, angry man. Get that thing that you don't have. You tell the prideful man, get humility. You tell them to become something that they're not. But I want you to, to note this. Christian obedience is shaped and fueled by the gospel. And it's fundamentally different you see the bible doesn't just tell us what we should do and not do though there are many commandments in the bible but it doesn't merely say do this don't do that it also reminds us the scriptures also remind us what god has done for us in jesus christ it's not just do this don't do this it's look at what god has done for us in the gospel and so in Paul's letters, you have this relationship with what we call the indicative and the imperative. And these are uh, two different moods of Greek verbs. The imperative are the commandments, the things that you should do, the things that you should not do. But friends, the indicatives are the gospel reminders of the things that are the things that are done, the things that God has freely accomplished for every Christian. And you might be asking, what in the world could this possibly have to do with real holiness in everyday life? And the answer to that question is absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. This is what sets apart Christianity from every other ethical system in Christ. Listen, the duns come before the dues. Jesus has gone before His people. What God has done in Christ precedes what we do in our response to God. Fleshly ethics says it. The opposite, become what you are not. That's bootstrap religion. Become what you're not. Bow up. Stretch yourself out. Become what you're not. But Paul says here, become what you already are in Christ. Gospel obedience. Notice... That prior to exhorting Christians to cease from sin, which he does do in verses 12 and 13, and we'll get there. Notice that prior to exhorting Christians to cease from sin, Paul proclaims to Christians the good news 
that they have already died to sin. I mentioned this to some of the brothers yesterday. Instead of Tim McGraw, live like you were dying, Paul's message in Romans 6 to Christians is brothers live because you're already dead. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Now again, we're dealing with an indicative. This is not Paul commanding them die to sin. He's proclaiming the finished work of Jesus. You're already dead to sin. It's not something that a few Christians graduate into this advanced state. Now we're dead to sin. Paul is proclaiming this is true for every believer. We are fundamentally dead to sin in Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the indicative. But what does it mean? Well, it can't mean two things. It certainly doesn't mean that a Christian is no longer affected by temptation. That you're like, you know, you're, you're tempted by sin and you're like a corpse. Can't even wake you up. You don't even feel it. Every one of us know that that's not true. Christians not only continue to be tempted by sin, Christians continue to feel that temptation every single day. Can't mean that. Neither does dead to sin mean that we no longer sin as Christians. I mean, this hardly even needs mentioning that Christians continue to sin. Christians continue to need forgiveness from our God. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we ask for daily bread and daily forgiveness from our God. If anyone sins, 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We still need that advocate because we still sin. If you look down to verse 6, we have a parallel passage, a parallel verse there that sheds light on what this indicative, this reality means to be dead to sin. Paul says there that a Christian, at the end of verse 6, is no longer enslaved to sin. And so to be dead to sin, as clarified by verse 6, is to be dead to sin's dominion. We are no longer under sin's slavery in Christ Jesus. Again, we have to remind ourselves, this is not our human achievement, what we have achieved through sanctification. This is the indicative, the finished work of Jesus from the very moment we believed the gospel. We were dead to sin in Jesus Christ. It's as though Paul begins to unpack in chapter 6. Yes, um, Jesus died for our sins. He proclaimed the crucifixion of Christ earlier in chapter 3. But here he turns as he deals with this objection and he begins to proclaim the crucifixion of Christians. Crucifixion of Christians. Not only the crucifixion of Christ, but our death with Jesus. 
It's as though Paul were saying, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but hold tight, boys. It gets even better than that. Not only did he save us from the guilt of sin and the penalty of sin, our Lord Jesus has also dealt with sin's power. We were crucified with our Lord Jesus. Paul says in verse 6, that our old man was crucified with Christ. That's the old you in Adam, apart from Jesus. The proclamation here is that you is dead. It died with Jesus. You, your old man, was crucified with Christ. And then he continues to reason this out in verse 6. So that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And that word nothing there is used several times in the book of Romans. It means nullified or rendered ineffective. You were crucified with Christ that the body of sin would be rendered ineffective. Stripped of its power. Nullified of its power. Third step in the argument in Romans 6. With the result... That you would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's how our Lord Jesus broke sin's dominion in your life as a Christian. Now you may have noticed this in chapter 6 and especially in chapter 5. The argument flows out of chapter 5. We're used to thinking about sin in the plural. That we commit acts of sin we we commit sin sin is the things that we do but in Romans 5 and 6 sin is personified as a power that ruled over us in our uh, state before Christ it's presented to us as a tyrant king in Romans 5 and 6 the way that Paul says it in the last verse of chapter 5 is that sin reigned in death. It's one of the things that you need to know about yourself outside of Jesus is that sin reigns over you. Sin is your king. In fact, we're not going to get there this morning, but Romans 6 goes on to give another you know, analogy for Christian sanctification of slavery, that when we come to Christ, we trade one form of slavery, a terrible form, slavery to sin, for another form, very different form of slavery, a glorious form of slavery. We become slaves of God. But what Romans 6 goes on to tell us is that no human being can be their own master. You're going to serve something. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve sin or you're going to serve God. But you're going to serve something. Romans chapter 5 tells us that sin ruled us. It was our king. It reigned over us through death. Now, death is the legal penalty for sin. And that legal penalty is what gave this tyrant king, we'll call him King Sin, the legal right to hold you as a captive. 
It wasn't just he held you there and you wiggled away and he grabbed you back in and you wiggled away. It was a, sin was a superior power that mastered you, dominated you, threw you were in King Sin's prison and you couldn't get out. You were awaiting execution. The penalty of sin. This is who we were in our lost human state and again we were in a condition that we could not free ourselves from we were ruled by a stronger master king sin in romans 5 and 6 is the real hotel california you can never leave you can never leave it ruled over us and so you need to understand that human beings outside of Jesus Christ are in King Sin's prison under King Sin's dominion awaiting our execution, death. And what Paul is doing here is he's proclaiming the Christian gospel in the midst of that reality. In the midst of our lost state, Jesus came and what did he do? Well, he paid the legal claim that sin had upon you. Why could sin hold us there? Because we owed God the wages for sin, death. And Jesus came and what did he do? As the propitiation that was put forth, that bloody payment for sin, what did Jesus do? He paid the penalty. How did he do it? With his death, with his death, and by paying that legal penalty, Jesus abolished King Sin's claim to hold you as a captive. We participated in that death to such a degree that it can be said in Romans 6 that we were crucified with Christ. Therefore, King Sin has no more legal claim upon a Christian. No longer does King Sin have a legal right to hold a Christian in slavery. What is Romans 6? Coming out of Romans 5, it's the proclamation of a new reign. The reign of sin has been overthrown by the reign of grace. King sin has been dethroned by a superior power. You couldn't defeat him. You couldn't defeat your old tyrant master. But one came who was stronger than king sin and liberated you from that captivity. King Jesus, the reign of grace. Now King Sin for the Christian is dethroned and awaiting final destruction at the return of Jesus Christ. Now don't get this wrong. King Sin is still around. In case you haven't noticed, he's still around. But the slaves who once served him have been executed and raised from the dead and released from his dominion and so now when king sin comes to tempt us as christians we experience that temptation 
outside the prison walls, not inside the prison cell. No longer under his bondage, able to resist him by the grace of God, by the weapons of grace, through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you love this about the gospel. Forgiveness of sin and power over sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the problem with some of you. The problem with some of you is that you're trying to fight king's sin while you're still in the prison cell and you have no hope you try for a hundred years and you'll never overpower him the bible proclaims that human beings apart from jesus christ are enslaved don't you understand christian salvation is not you do a little bit for yourself and jesus just finishes off the work christian salvation is you need to be rescued friend You need a savior. You need someone to come and save you from your plight, from this horrible condition of the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, under the dominion of sin, enslaved to the power of sin. Some of you are trying to fight King's sin while you're still in prison because you haven't come to Jesus Christ. You have to come to Christ. You have to repent. You have to trust in the Lord Jesus. And He's your only hope. You could wait your whole life for another to come for you. And not only would nobody else come for you in your condition. If someone else did come for you, they wouldn't be qualified to save you. They wouldn't be qualified to save you from your sins. They wouldn't be strong enough to rip you out of that captivity. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. There's a second indicative running throughout the first ten verses. And it's really the counterpart. Christians are dead to sin, released from sin's dominion. But the counterpart is that we are also alive to God. That's a phrase that comes right out of verse 11. And again, brothers and sisters, this is a done. You are alive to God. Not you're going to be, you know, one day, though that's gloriously true. Right now, objectively true, completely unrelated to your daily experience of good day, bad day Christianity, you are in Christ Jesus alive to God. Verse 4 says it this way, you have been raised to walk in newness of life. We are alive in Christ. Just as you have received a new heart As a Christian, a new spirit, a new covenant, we have received new life in Jesus Christ. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. These indicatives, I hope you see it in Romans 6, all they're doing is describing the doctrine of regeneration. Paul is proclaiming in in chapter 6, not only have you been justified freely by His grace, you've also been born again by the power of God. You're new. You're not the old you. You're new. You're alive to God. 
At conversion, every believer experiences a spiritual resurrection, a participation in the resurrection of Jesus. Before the bodily one on the final day, we are raised with Christ. Colossians 3 says it this way. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, one of the things that Paul uses to illustrate these beautiful indicatives of dead to sin and alive to God is he points us to Christian baptism in verse 3. And we see that baptism is this powerful sign that signifies our salvation in Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, one of the beautiful pictures of baptism, and I love this, is that it's passive. Nobody baptizes themselves. No, in other words, you'll never find the commandment in the New Testament, baptize yourself. It's what? Be baptized. Something needs to happen to you, which is a beautiful picture of Christian salvation. That even baptism, even the way that we receive it, is a reminder to us we're not achieving anything. Jesus is saving me from my sins. Jesus has acted on my behalf, and we receive it by faith. Martin Luther called the ordinances, baptism and the supper, he called them visible words. So you have the proclamation of the gospel in preaching of the word, and then you have the gospel visibly demonstrated in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so baptism preaches to us. If we have faith, if we hear the word of God, it preaches to us. And one of the sermons that baptism preaches to us is that we are one with Christ. That we are united to our Lord Jesus. You could even call this the most fundamental reality in baptism. Is it points to our union with Christ. Galatians 3 says it this way, 327. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 3 in Romans 6, notice that we're baptized into Christ. Verse 4, we were buried with him. That's that join to Jesus, union language running throughout this whole passage. And it's because of our union with Christ, Paul proclaims that when Jesus was crucified, so were you, Christian. When Jesus died, so did you, Christian. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. Your old man was buried, Christian. In other words, it's not just Jesus acting for you. You're there with Him. You're in union with your Lord. Now, I don't want you to miss the argument that Paul is working towards in this whole section and it's this, you can't divide Jesus Christ. 
That's the argument underneath everything that he's saying here, dealing with this objection, is the only way you could ask that question of shall we continue in sin that grace may abound is if you thought Jesus Christ could be divided, but he can't be divided. You see, just as surely as you are joined to Jesus in his crucifixion, in his death, and in his burial, just as surely you are joined to Jesus Christ in his glorious and triumphant resurrection from the dead. You can't have part of Jesus. You get the whole Christ, the whole thing. Look at what he says in verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so because we are one with Jesus, Jesus can never be divided. Meaning that no Christian can receive part of salvation and not another part of salvation. And this is Paul's argument as Romans unfolds. There is no one, no one, who has received the death of Christ, who has not also received the resurrection of Christ. Or to say it this way, there is no one, and we mean no one, who has received justification by faith, who has not also received regeneration, life from the dead. They go together because Jesus can never be divided. So, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Justification is by faith alone, but his argument in chapter 6 is that justification never comes alone. It's not in isolation. We are called up as Christians in the glorious plan of salvation, comprehensive Savior from sin. And then we come to the word so in verse 11. And this is where Paul begins to turn the corner from what God has done freely, objectively for you in Christ, to what you do, to what you do, to how you respond to the grace of God. And isn't it interesting, and I mean fascinating, that the first command that he calls us to in this section is not to work and exert ourselves in some direction really hard, but rather he calls us to think. Notice that in verse 11. So, in light of all that, first 10 verses, you must, underline it, consider yourselves, some translations reckon yourselves, dead to sin and alive to God. And then the most important three words, in Christ Jesus. Christian, you have got to learn to think according to the gospel. Your thought life has to be submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to underestimate the power of what you know. The power of believing truths and not believing lies. That is a powerful thing to have a mind full of gospel doctrine. Don't underestimate that. Why? Paul tells us later in Romans chapter 12 
that every step forward you make in Christian sanctification, every time that happens, a precursor happens where God touches your mind. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Christian, what you believe is a powerful thing. And Paul is commanding us in verse 11 to believe the gospel, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 shows us that getting right in our thinking precedes verses 12 and 13, getting right in our behavior. Now, I want to say this. This is not Christian make-believe stuff, okay? We got enough of that flying around on TBN of I don't have a million dollars, but I'm going to name it, claim it, declare it, swear it, and I got $10 million, okay? Paul is not calling us to, to believe the impossible, and if we believe it hard enough, if we reckon it hard enough, the impossible becomes possible. He's not calling us to that. All he's calling you to do is to believe verses 1 through 10. Since these things are true, you got to think about yourself like this. You have got to stop thinking about yourself apart from Christ Jesus. You have got to learn to think about yourself in Christ Jesus. So no doubt, you feel it all the time, the fight with sin. But who are you in Christ? What has God done for you in Christ? Verse 11 is a call for your mind to submit to and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know this. This is how you break the power of sin in your life. This is how Christians do it. This is how we do it. All, all this is is bringing the gospel to bear on your indwelling sin. This is how you kill lust. This is how you kill anger. This is how you kill bitterness and jealousy. And all of it is you bring the glorious, finished work of Jesus to bear upon your sin. Christian, you have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now the practical aspects of Paul's argument can be found in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now we come full circle. And basically the argument is this. King sin's reign has been broken. So don't let him reign over you anymore. That's not who you are in Jesus Christ. What kind of prisoner of war stayed in a Vietnam you know, POW camp for seven years that says about three years after his release, you know what, I'd really like to go back to that place. Who does that? Since Jesus has rescued you from that prison, don't ever let him reign over you again. That's the indicative, imperative relationship. And listen... We are really, really bad about running immediately to the practical. 
Man, I'm sinning. I want to stop sinning. I'm tired of sinning. I hate sin. I want to stop sinning. Give me something practical to do. Okay, verse 12. Sin, you're done reigning over me. But listen, verse 12 only works in context of verses 1 through 11. It's the indicatives. You have to believe the gospel. You have to go into your obedience as a Christian. Lest anyone think that Christian holiness is merely this mental, you know, Jedi mind trick of verse 11. Man, we just, you know, we sin all we want, but we consider ourselves dead to sin. Verses 12 and 13 show us that no, Christian holiness is real, concrete, bodily acts of obedience to God. It's real obedience, not fake obedience, not pretend obedience. Christian holiness is real obedience to God. He says in verse 13, present your members. Present yourself. If Jesus bought you, Jesus owns you, then then present yourself to your new king. Not to sin any longer, but present yourselves to God. Serve your new king. Now that's very practical. All kind of practical things that you could do or, or, or refrain from And, man, I want to present myself, not to sin, but to God. And there are things that you should stop doing. And there are things that you should start doing. And your fight with sin and your growth in holiness. There's nothing wrong with being practical. I want to stop this. I want to start this instead. Practical is not bad. But practical is nothing without faith in Jesus Christ. It's nothing. And so isn't it interesting in verse 13 that not only are we told, don't present your members to sin, but present your members to God. We are also told to do that, at the end of verse 13, as those who have been brought from death to life. Present yourselves to God, brothers and sisters, as those who have been brought from death to life. That's a call to believe the gospel as you set out to obey your God. Christian holiness involves acts of the will, but it's not mere willpower. It's acts of the will undergirded with believing the gospel. Do it as those who have been raised from death to life. In verse 14, Paul closes with a promise. He says, sin will have no dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now again, this is only a promise for Christians. If you're you're not in Christ, sin does have dominion over you. But if you are in Christ, the promise of grace is that sin will have no dominion over you. Now, we need to understand what's being promised and what's not because we want to stand on God's word and take God at his word so we want to make sure we get it right. Verse 14 is not promising us sinless perfection as Christians. We have to remember we live in the now and not yet. And what that means in, in, in Romans 6 is we live between two great realities, regeneration and resurrection from the dead. 
What's being proclaimed to us in Romans 6 is that the power of sin has been broken for every Christian. What will be proclaimed to us in Romans 8 is that the very presence of sin will be removed by the resurrection of Christ on the final day. And so we want to avoid over-realized eschatology that sounds like this. Man, we never sin anymore. But we also want to avoid under-realized eschatology that doesn't stand upon the word of God. That doesn't embrace that Jesus has broken the power of sin for every Christian. And so what we have is we have a fight with an enemy that has been dethroned. And we have to continue that fight until the final day. And here's the good news in Christ. Not only must we fight with sin, we can. We can. He has enabled us to do everything that he's called us to do. Romans 8 says it this way. Romans 8, 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. Of the body. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And my closing word is this trust God for this promise in verse 14. God said that sin would have no dominion over you. God said that. Trust Him for that promise. The death and the resurrection of Jesus will certainly achieve its purposes in your life. Trust God for that. It's certain. Why? Because you're not under the law. At the end of the day, it's not based on human performance. You're under grace. You're in a whole new reign. Under grace. Under King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would gladden our souls this morning with the gospel. And Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, use Romans 6 to equip us to believe right things and reject lies about ourselves and about our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would use these words to strengthen us for battle and that you would be glorified, that your power over indwelling sin would be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.